this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Brian O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with a legend in the comics medium, Liam Sharp. Thanks so much for carving out a little time today for me, for what I'm sure is a busy schedule for you. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. And, uh, it's, uh, this, is, this is a busy time for me, full stop, but it's like, Ask a busy man, as they always they always say, you know. And, oh, for sure. Uh, I, 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 this is I'm so excited about um, this week in particular that uh, I'm just sort of you know if people want to talk about it, I'm happy to jump on and talk about it. Well, let's jump right into your new project, Starhenge. Then being published by Image Comics, I was watching the videos about it the other day on your website, and you described this thing as Excalibur meets the Terminator via Doctor Who, which sounds pretty wild. So why don't you tell us what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to come up with a top line for it. it it's a ridiculously, um, you know, <laughs> rich and uh, convoluted concept. Um, and, you know, it's quite bonkers, to be honest. It's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit mad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but basically, how do I break it down beyond that? The, it's what it is, is... And I wonder whether to talk about the whole sort of to go right back to the, the origins of the whole thing. But basically what it is, is it's a future Merlin, sort of vaguely based on the TH White idea of the Merlin was born in the future, dies in the past. Um, he's in a world where we have uh, started populating uh, planets in the Goldilocks zones, which is uh, planets that are able to sustain human life. And they land on one and there's no, organic life but they it turns out there had been an ancient civilization that had been ai that had uh, basically killed the whole planet so it's the whole sort of elon musk threat and everything that everyone's been talking about about the threat of the ai and in this case and i guess this is where the terminator idea comes in the ai has has uh, very much taken a dislike to organic life wiped it out so when humans land and they discover there's more organic life in the universe, they are quite keen to get out and, and uh, wipe that out as well. So as a war starts in the future, um, the humans uh, realize that they are at a massive disadvantage because of the um, ability of robots and uh, artificial intelligences to think at a much, much faster pace than humans. Um, but one thing they have that the that the automatons and the robots don't have is magic, which is um, 
an unquantifiable thing. It's it's uh, it's not logical. Um, it's something they can't really work with, and so the humans um, basically have this one element that is to their advantage. Um, so the robots then figure out that if they go back in time and wipe out all of the sources of magic, because it turns out that, and this is a kind of reference to the grail to some extent, that human, the, the earth is the, is the place that magic originates from in the universe. It's a, it's a weird anomaly. Um, so all of magic emanates from earth. Um, and so they figure out that if they go back to the, to, through time, and for the sake of our story, it's the fifth century in Arthurian times, uh, they can wipe out various um, threads of magic that are that are leading into the future. And obviously, you know, if you if you extrapolate from that, you can you can see that this story could last for a very long time because you could explore all the different cultures and see where magic's coming from in you know other countries as well. But um, for the sake of this story, and because it's the Merlin stuff uh, and the Geoffrey and Monmouth origin stuff, um, it's. It's, Mer it's Merlin. So Merlin is from the future, gets sent back in time to, to find out where the robots are um, attacking Earth. And he find, and we find in the story that Earth in the fifth century is really quite different even to what we know now, you know, historically, because it was more magical and it's shifted and it's changed. So the basic premise is that, yeah, it's a hard sci-fi future with no magic. It's past from the fifth century with magic. And then there's a, a modern day thread which ties it all together. And that's our narrator and she's uh, Amber Weaver. So yeah, <laughs> not, so, not, not the most simple of uh, concepts to try and put across. So, so trying to pitch this, would you say this is a sci-fi story with magic or a magic story with sci-fi? Yeah, well, it's all of them, isn't it? It's really science fiction, fantasy and horror, you know. It's uh, it's a big mix of all the, all the kind of, all of all of my personal like favorite genres really so i'm having fun that's a, that's what counts ultimately right and you've had this bouncing around if i understand it in your head for like 30 years or something so well as a concept yeah i mean not not so much the the, the whole sci-fi thing um it really was a, a love of mythology so <clears throat> when i was like 13 years old, 13 through 18, I, um, at school I got to study um, classical civilizations, that was the uh, subject. And it was mostly Roman and Greek stuff, and the Aeneid and the clouds and, the, you know, Socrates and the birth of democracy and all of that kind of stuff, the, the art and the, the architecture, the Roman and Greek in particular, and also the mythology as, as well. And I, I, I really loved it, but I, there was a point somewhere when I was about 14, I was like, why don't I know anything about the mythology that's much closer to home? Um, Celtic mythology, you know, it seemed like that didn't really warrant, you know, it wasn't classical or it, was, it didn't warrant the same attention. Um, and so I started getting very interested in that myself and sort of, looking at things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and spin-off stuff that comes out like Beowulf and uh, the Mabinogion, which was all the French, all, all, all the Welsh myths. Um, I've got a beautiful book by Alan Lee. He did all the concept art for uh, Lord of the Rings films. 
Um, but back in the 80s, he did an illustrated version of the Mabin Nodjin, which is just gorgeous. Um, and then uh, another huge influence was uh, Jim Fitzpatrick, who did a, a book called The Silver Arm, which is all the Irish mythology. And he, he did like album covers for Thin Lizzy, and he did the very famous Che Guevara headshot that everyone, you know, all the students used to have on their walls in the 70s. And, um, but he, he's, he's Irish and he's very invested in Irish mythology. And so he, he, he illustrated these two beautiful books for uh, Drag, uh, Paper Tiger which is the Roger Dean imprint. Um, and they, they really started inspiring me. So I, I was then like, I was then very curious about, okay, it's specifically British, what have we got? You know, you've got Robin Hood to some extent, you know, how realistic, how, how real was he as a character? And I came across this amazing book called The Quest for Merlin by a chap called Nikolai Tolstoy. And he's like Leo Tolstoy's grandson massive um scholar of all of that material and then the book is really written on the premise of trying to prove that merlin was a real person and existed as a historical figure um and i just found the book completely fascinating i ended up going driving around uh, britain and looking at the various sites when i was maybe 19 20 something like that with a with a friend of mine who loved the same material he also did a huge, um, it was meant to be a trilogy. I only wrote the one book and it's a shame because it's a lovely book. It's called The Book of Merlin and it's uh, it, it's just a, the most sort of historically dense and highly referenced of, of all of those um, books that I've come across anyway. And and so he he was really my introduction to characters like Canunas and uh, it, uh, placing that in a sort of fifth century historical setting and various other characters from Kentigern and specifically Geoffrey of Monmouth and his writings and his version of, of Merlin and Arthur, which is the earliest written down versions, although he's referencing an earliest, earlier um, documents that we, we only have fragments of and things. So it's, um, it's the first sort of fairly complete document and it's, it's really fascinating. There's sort of an Arthur in there that I've never seen anywhere else. And so I had a long, for a long time, I really wanted to just do a kind of straight up um, illustrated version of Geoffrey of Monmouth's version of Merlin and Arthur. Uh, uh, but then you look at it and it's a bit like the Vinland sagas. It's a little bit dry and it's, it's like it moves along at such a cracking pace that you, you never have time to invest in the characters. You never really get to know anybody. It's just a saga, you know. Um, people are born and die and travel here and fight there and you know, there's you don't really get much more of a, a a sense of the personalities. You could extrapolate from it, of course, but it, it's it's a dense um, story, and if you're going to cover it all, then there's a lot of work to do. So, so again, you know, out of all of that, um, I thought I, I do want to write something that has some accessibility. And I also realised that I didn't really want to do just fantasy I, I i get a real kick out of science fiction as particularly drawing science fiction and off the back of doing the green lantern and working with grant on that and the painted stuff that we did uh, in the in the last sort of five six issues um i was just like this is where my heart lies and i started thinking about things like i don't know if you've come across it uh, howard chaikin's uh, adaptation of alfred bester's the stars my destination yeah it's, mm -hmm. it's just brilliant um it, you know, and obviously the uh, it's a problematic story and <laughs> some of the concepts that that happen within it.
but just the way he went about adapting it, the way he really merged um, illustrated prose and and, and uh, uh, graphic novel comics, I just thought was amazing. Um, and I've always wanted to do something like that, and this felt like an opportunity. So then it was a case of like, how do I stitch my love of this magical, mythical stuff with, you know, a really sort of um, hard sci-fi saga that I could have some fun with as well. So, so it all just became this kind of melting pot of things that I really loved. And, uh, and, and I found myself <laughs> afloat in all of that craziness and, and thinking, what the hell have I done? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm crazy, you know. Well, um, were there were there specific you've you've referenced Merlin and come in some of the background here. Were there other specific kind of Arthurian beats that that you just had to hit in the story, or you, is this kind of a loose interpretation? It, it's well, ultimately, it became less about Arthur and less about um, the just those kind of uh, yeah. I mean, it it, it didn't really it doesn't really follow that the. the thread of that the, the first six issues references it because it's all okay. the setup mm -hmm. the story is going to be much more about daryl and amber and merlin you know so in a way they're they're particularly i think in the first few issues they are like you know doctor who's uh, companions because it was really originally going to be really about merlin and fully focused on merlin but what you find with him as a character well i did anyway was that he? He's almost more like a Doctor Who character or a Gandalf or something like that, where where they they kind of work better as as um, a cipher or a, a device to hook the whole story on. But we our way into it is is through the companions, whether it's the Hobbits or the Doctor's companions, and you know, and sure. they're the people that we relate to, and they're the people that we sort of you know. They represent us a little bit more, um, so that that was that was really it. Um, there is stuff definitely from Monmouth's um, version because his version of Arthur is is like I've never seen his version in in any other uh, medium. I mean, to be fair, I, I don't I haven't read lots and lots of uh, Merlin. Um, versions of the of the, the Arthurian stories or Arthurian novels or anything like that for the main reason that I've wanted to do this so long that I didn't want to be um I didn't I didn't want to be influenced by other people's interpretations or other people's uh versions of the story I, I wanted to if I was going to be doing something that seemed like somebody else's version I didn't want to know that I was doing it you know it would I wanted it to come from a point of view of, of like, I, I'm just trying to do a fresh adaptation without being influenced. Um, but it's not really an adaptation at all now. It's, it's become its own beast. And, and that's partly because, uh, that's partly something my wife said, and also Nick Abadzis, who did uh, the the uh, book Laika, um, about the dog that he won Eisner for. It's a beautiful book and he's, a, he's an old mate. And talking to both of them, they were just saying, you know what? I was showing them very early drafts, which were much more embedded in the Monmouth stuff. And they said, yeah, it's great, but you are actually a storyteller and writer in your own right. You know, you don't have to adapt, adapt somebody else's work. You can come up with your own thing that, that encompasses some of these things. And it almost let me off the hook a bit. Um, and it also, it sort of made it more fun. And it, 
it made it less stressful and made I, I got quite worried that I was going to be doing something that was so um specific to a to a very kind of scholarly interest uh, that it was never going to be read by anybody sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> except a few a handful of people who really love that kind of material um and you know i did want it to be an entertainment and i wanted it to be something that hopefully did well enough that i could come back and do more and that's the problem you can't sort of you can you can dream about doing things in a in a very sort of um earnest way but if if you're only going to have three three thousand or two thousand readers it's not sustainable there's only ever going to be maybe one series and that's that and you're never going to be able to explore the, the these places in the way that you'd hope to so so i really sort of had to sit back and rethink it all in that sense yeah yeah it, it's kind of interesting to me hearing you talk about this and and having read the first issue myself i can assure people there's nothing derivative about this i mean it is it is wild right um and i guess one of my curiosities was why you wanted to go so it's it's more of a merlin focus but it it's very epic i mean like and, and this could just be the first issue kind of coloring you know kind of my my interpretation of things and it might just kind of tamp down a little bit and you kind of go big or go home at the beginning but yeah you know why why make something so epic it just seems like you're making it hard on yourself liam <laughs> i am yeah yeah well I I sort of envisaged it. I planned it as four books, and the first one was going to start in the fifth century. The second was going to be in uh, the uh, um, the sort of chivalry age. So it was it was going to be looking at Thomas Mallory's era and um, what he had to do with it all, and this, this notion that actually Merlin is telling Mallory to to write the books because it's he needs to keep the concept of what's Stonehenge represents uh, alive. You know, Stonehenge is very central to it. It's like a, it, it's a, it's a hub of where the energy is. It's, it's, a, it, it's a sigil um, that's meant to echo down the ages and, and keep reminding people of how important magic is in order for there to be magic in the future. Um, and then the, the next thing was near future, and then the far future was the, the fourth book. Um, the, what I found is that I'm enjoying myself so much, I could imagine doing it as a, you know many more than four books, and and it not being just the four books that get us to the future and then it's over. You know, I I, I could there's so the world is so rich in the production of it, and I the ideas that have spun out of it are are so varied and many that it, it sort of fulfills a lot of the criteria of everything that I ever sort of wanted to do and tell and draw or anything. So I could, you know, the, the hope is this does well enough that I can come back and do another book, you know, every year possibly. Um, you know, after this is over, I've got a couple, uh, after this six issues is over, I've got a couple of other gigs for some of the well-known publishers. So I've got a, I've got an EXO gig and, and then something for DEC after that that hasn't been announced. Um, but I really, as soon as that's done, I'm, I'm already itching to get back <laughs> to do book two and three and four and whatever. And I've had ideas about spin-offs, and I mean, Daryl turns out to have a much richer story than I expected. Um, I, I really like where his his goes, you know. Um, and then just even the approaches to the 
because Amber herself sees the world, she's an artist, and she interprets the world through her art, and she thinks about it in, you know, if she's trying to process what's going on, she'll think about it in terms of other, other like, you know, just popular things, you know, things like musical references or film references. Um, it's how she um, copes with the, the, just the size of, of everything that's happening to her. Um, and, and it's just because she thinks very visually. And that's lovely because that gives me a possibility that there's a bit in issue four, for instance, where she talks about um, everything that's going on is so big that she can't help but sort of think, this is like being in a, in a 70s comic that like, from my dad's collection. <laughs> uh, so it suddenly goes into a, a kind of much more retro um, flat colors with the little dot matrices and everything. And, uh, and, and that's how she sort of is trying to explain it to us as the readers, because the comic's quite self-aware. And you know, there's, a, there's a bit in an issue too where she says Merlin's so vain, he, he probably thinks this comic's about him. <laughs> um, so it's, it, 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 the comic knows it's a comic. Um, and uh, and all of that is fun, you know. This is the this is this is the joy of this medium. Is it? It does. It it's infinitely pliable. Um, uh, so you you were saying earlier on about does it stay as big and epic? Yes, but in different ways. You know that it'll keep flashing backwards to the future. Um, the big battle stuff in the future that's a way off. Okay. Um, but we'll get there, hopefully, you know, it, provided it keeps selling. And and uh, but but I also want it to be, I want it to be a setup so that we can just enjoy the adventure as well. You know, um, I don't want to always to be like, I don't want every, excuse me, every single issue to be a challenge. Sure. I, I want it to bounce along and be fun and for us to enjoy being in the company of the characters and not always to be getting like a, a migraine trying to figure out what's going on <laughs> back and forth here and there all that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah well, i've been following your work for a long time and this gives me a a fantastic opportunity which i really appreciate to kind of go into the artistic side and, and kind of some of your process you know with <laughs> some of your recent you know painted work you referenced some of the green lantern stuff and, and with reptilian the, the batman work and and now sarhenge you know the, the expression has changed. What I'm seeing visually has changed. You know, has this been a, a natural evolution of you as an artist or are we just seeing something you've wanted to do for a long time? Well, I, you know, my whole career, I've, 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 I've struggled to adhere to this notion that you should come up with a single style and approach and stick with it. Um, I get it. I understand the mentality behind it, but I also think that if you're truly trying to be an artist, then it might not be, you know, it might not necessarily apply in the best way. Yeah. And it's actually something, my, my daughter went to the Academy of Art in San Francisco and, and uh, she's great. She's a great little artist, really proud of her. And she's doing really well and she's picking up lots of work and she, she won a scholarship and, when she um, graduated, the agencies, and I think this just stinks, frankly, I think it's a terrible thing, 
but agencies were charging the students, this is illustration agencies, charging the students, I can't remember the figure, but it was a certain amount for a 15 minute slot or 10 minute slot for each of them to look at their portfolios. So that they would go away, the agencies, I mean, it's just ridiculous. They're just stuffing their pockets from, from kids that have already spent a fortune to be on these courses. And not only that, but the advice she got at the end of it was to find a single style and stick with it and just do that. And I just thought, she's just coming out of art school. It's like, this is, this is like, this seems like the opposite of what art should be. Yeah. And it also seems like if you do that, you're completely limited to being stuck in one um, pigeonhole. A lot of the time, people, are, it, it seems to me, are more likely to give you one type of story if you're only presenting one approach. So, you know, like in my instance, I love fantasy. I like science fiction. I like horror. Um, I like comedy. I like lots and lots of like romances or whatever. I like many, many different things. Um, and they're all fun to do. And I liked, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a stab at all of those things, which is actually what we did in the Green Lantern. And um, and it, I, when I think, you know, if I'm going to do a horror comic, I'm not necessarily going to approach it exactly the same way, with the same colour palettes and the same beats and the same um, slick finish or otherwise uh, that I would for, for a superhero comic or, you know, a very light comedy or you know whatever it doesn't seem to make sense to try to apply the same technique to everything um and then i thought about like some of my real heroes like i mentioned Chaikin earlier he, he would adapt to the story and to the source material M mobius was exactly the same when he was doing the, the all the, the arzac stuff or all the stuff that he did as mobius as opposed to jean giro um it, it would shift and change based sometimes panel to panel depending on you know how inspired he was uh, and it never stopped being mobius and it never stopped being amazing so uh, and i also think like people like bill sankevich who's an etern eternally restless and brilliant artist you know probably if i really had to pick one and i don't like having favorites of anything i'm very eclectic i like many many different things um yeah, but if I really, really had my, you know, if it was gun to the head, kind of pick one artist or that, or it's over, I think it would be Bill. I think it would be Bill of all of them. Um, because I just never get tired of looking at his stuff. I, I, I love his constant um, reinvention. I love that he'll do something as, as, as challenging and avant-garde as stray toasters. You know? um, but he's capable of being, doing, you know, but the uh, the the X Men books and uh, you know, it's just all and it really was since the um, Moon Knight when he did the Hit It story way back in the day that he really blew my mind and changed the the face of what comics might be when I saw that and um, and so that's really where my template was and I think what it, my my dream was always to get there but the opportunity to do something like that. Is really hard to come by, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. And as long as you're doing something mainstream, people just um, want you to do the same thing. I think what happened is I got really, really lucky on the Green Lantern. 
because what that did was it meant, you know, I, I obviously had the very um, mainstream run on Wonder Woman, which I was really proud of, but I was just like, I'm going to put, I'm, I'm not going to think about technique. I'm going to think about storytelling. I'm going to think about clarity. I'm going to think about a really steady hand. Um, I had, to me, getting the chance to do Wonder Woman again was a comeback because I felt like since the early 90s, I, I'd been very largely forgotten. Um, and people, people who've known me for a long time say, no, don't call it a comeback. We were always there. We, you know, we, we, we've always been there and we know, uh, and which is all very kind and everything, but it was barely sustaining me. Um, and and it does, it's nice to know you've got a few uh, people who are loyally sort of following you, but unless the industry at large recognises you there, you're pretty much under the radar, right? Um, so Wonder Woman just put me back in, in the spotlight to some degree again. Uh, and I thought when I got that opportunity, so I can't mess this up. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to grab it. I've got to work bloody hard. I've got to not be too challenging with the art. Just be st a steady pair of hands and a solid pair of hands. And that's what I aspired to be with Wonder Woman. And I kept going um, with that in mind for quite a long period of time. Um, and I, I, I think what happened is I won. I then won a new audience and a, and a solid audience that knew they could trust the quality. And then they followed me onto the Green Lantern. That brought some other new, um, new followers there. And then because of the nature of that book uh, and, the and the whole notion that we were going to not just do a sort of exploration of space and time and, and uh, uh, you know, and all the big themes that the Green Lantern uh, presents, we could also do an exploration of the medium and the check the way that the, the book has changed from like the John Broome period through to, you know, later, much later versions through the Neil Adams. So we homaged, we homaged Broome to some extent early on. We homaged Neil Adams, of course, and Denny O'Neill. Um, and as we got into the second season, then it was more about, well, let's homage all, all the stuff that really inspired us when we were young. This is, was a, uh, something that Grant and I talked a, a, a lot about, you know, so he would just keep throwing, he's like, okay, there's this, uh, there's this Rodney Matthews painting, the ice schooner. I was like, yeah, I know that. I love that painting, you know. So it's like, oh, I want to do that, but I want to do it on a, on a lake of lava. And it's like, okay, great, great, great. So even though it's, you know, not a direct, um, not everyone would know that piece. There's there's things, there's, there's artists and, and creators and stuff that we all loved that we just threw in the mix. So, and we kind of intentionally went out with the last issue leaning a little bit towards Dave McKean, um, Arkham Asylum. So it's kind of a bookend because Grant was like, this is going to be my last ever DC book. So I want to, I want to, you know, bookend my career. Full circle. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which was a lovely thing to do. Cause I was like, great. <laughs> this is like exactly what I wanted to do uh, all along. And we'd kind of set um, some expectation in the readership by then. The first, the first uh, season was, bit more solid and a, there was the uh, there was the the Neil Adams one but that was close enough to my style to be to almost go unnoticed you know um 
the, the second season, we just went bonkers. And, and it kept changing too. We didn't know if it was going to be six issues, five issues, eight issues. So it kept going. It's like 12, then it was back down to six. And we just were like, kept being thrown through the loop. So in the end, we were just like, you know what? Let's just have fun. Let's just throw everything at it. Let's just... So both of us love the second season much more because it's, it's the crazy bonkers one, but it's much more sort of creative. It might be a bit more challenging. It might not be... Uh, terribly mainstream or easy to follow sometimes but everything's there the bones are great uh, and it's a lot of fun um, I loved what he did in that and and it was funny too because sometimes what happens and you find I've heard this story many times over the years like for a lot lots of runs that became really well regarded much much later were the ones that people stopped looking at <laughs> so you end up with like Jim Stalin's uh, Adam Warlock stuff, you know, where he just basically, no one was looking at that book. He just did what he wanted to do. And it was completely unique and wild and mad and beautiful because of it. You know? uh, and it felt a bit like we were in that space because by that time, they were already thinking about the next series and all the focus is on that. And there was so much upheaval going on at DC and Dan had gone and, you know, they were, they were trying to figure out what the next line of books were and how they were going to rethink everything. So we were just like, OK, we'll just we'll just do our own crazy thing now, you know. Um, uh, and so it was a ton of fun. I finished the, the, the book with a whole bunch of painted issues, um, which I really, really enjoyed doing. So when it, I, I knew I'd be, I had a reptilian lined up, and I was a bit cheeky on this one because <laughs> the uh, Marie Javen had asked me if I could do Reptilian a few years, two years earlier, just as I, I was about to start um, the Green Lantern. I said, I'd love to because um, for a start, Garth's an old, old mate of mine. Um, second, Steve Dillon was a great mate of mine. The three of us used to meet up a lot and, and have drinks in New York and Ireland, wherever, you know, um, San Francisco. That sounds like uh, trouble, but yeah. <laughs> I was always fun, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Steve is a, a gentleman and they can, they can handle their, they can handle their beers, that's for sure. I could never quite keep up with either of them. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, so we, we were tight and Marie was also a friend of, of all of us. And she just said, you know, we want to keep it in the family. So would you be up for doing it? I was like, absolutely, absolutely. You know. So when it came to it and I looked at the script, I was just like, I don't want to stop painting it. So I went quiet. I did about five pages of it uh, in a painted style and then kind of submitted them. I said, oops, <laughs> I don't know if you were wanting me to do it in this way, but um, you know, so don't mean it to come across like a fait accompli, but it kind of is, you know. Um, and everyone loved it. And Marie was like, no, it's going to make it really special. It wasn't what we were expecting, but it's great. Um, stick with it. Let's let's do it. Um, and that book came out. I was really proud of it. It was a joy to do. It was, it, it, we kind of, I just whizzed through it, you know. Um, and I love the hardback issue because one of the things that Garth had said was he, 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 we both liked we both kind of rediscovered Batman in our late teens, early twenties, in the, in in the form of Dark Knight and in the form of Arkham Asylum, you know. And they, they were very different, grown up. You know, we we were aware of 
the character from uh, used, but it was a very different Batman then, and largely from the TV show. And then rediscovered it through those brilliant works that completely reinvented the character. So our frame of reference for Batman was really there. Um, uh, and so I, again, having just done a kind of homage to Arkham Asylum, it was like, okay, now I can do Batman in a kind of homage to uh, Arkham Asylum style all over again. And when they did the hardback, it's like exactly the same size. And you can almost you can almost read from one into the other. It's got it's, it's very much in that sort of vibe. Obviously, Garth's writing is quite different and uh, and very darkly funny in a different way. Um, but yeah, now I was really pleased with it. So and again, you know, once I finished that, it's like whatever I do next, I'm still I'm not ready to stop painting yet. I feel like I'm just getting going. Um, I'm just honing this uh, with the with the process of having to do it in a monthly schedule and just you know get it out there and so it's been it's been a lot of fun but it's it's really where I've always wanted to be that's that's what I was leading up to so in a very <laughs> long-winded way. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's it's really fascinating, too, with, with Starhenge, because you see different, entirely different aesthetics, you know, in the, in the different eras. You know, there's like... I caught, maybe it's my personal filter here, but there was definitely a, geek, a lot of Giger notes yeah. um, with with the futuristic stuff, um, even with um, the kind of the matriarchal figure. You know, that that reminded me very much of his his when he he painted the portrait of his wife Lee. Um, right. Yeah, uh, and then completely different, almost more of a Frazetta kind of you know those kind of notes with. With the stuff that is historical so you know were you going for specific specific things there or? there's we're all the sums uh of of the people who inspired us you know we that's what makes up who we are you know um and so inevitably in my painted work there's there's a whole bunch of people that i absolutely adore geiger's very much one of them giga um, Frazetta is very much one of them. Boris Vallejo too. Um, there, there's other people. As Jim Burns was a big influence. There's uh, John Berkey uh, is an influence. Um, Jeff Jones is an influence. Mm-hmm. Jeff Catherine Jones definitely in the in in some of the, those scenes. And and there's 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 McKean in that too. Um, it's funny. I wasn't in. I wasn't intentionally. Um, trying to do a Bisley, but we're both influenced by. So you know, Bisley, for instance, is you can clearly see the Frazetta, you can see the Richard yep. Corbin, and you can see the Bilson Kevich influences in his stuff. In that, particularly, like in you know the uh, the Dread um, Batman story, or in the his Slain stuff. So that's there, and I've always had a kind of a you know, I've always been a bit of an Arnie fan from when I was a kid. I used to. I used to, 
I, I was a, I was your classic um, bullied kid <laughs> in his bedroom with his comics, wishing that he was really Conan uh, and getting into bodybuilding magazines. So, um, so I was, I, I loved Conan, and I was really into um, like Flex magazine and wanted to be huge and buff and all of that kind of thing, which obviously informs that work as well. Um, looking at Richard Corbin's stuff, discovering Den, being, my mind being blown by that. Uh, it, there's so many things in there. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not always conscious. Um, but, uh, but I think maybe that's why it's starting to look um, increasingly uh, very recognisably me now, as opposed to, you know, um, looking like I'm aping other people. I think I think it feels much more like a, a genuine like homage as opposed to you know a, 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 a trace a trace job or you know oh for for certain yeah. for certain I mean the 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 Beasley piece would like absolutely jumped out to me I am such a fan of Simon's and back in the day I would buy the Doom Patrol covers and the Judge Dredd oh they were amazing yeah just for the covers you know just yeah. so I could soak that in um, yeah. and, and one aspect that I, I was really interested in. Um, so as a photographer myself, I'm familiar with that that technique you're using of of image mirroring. And, you know, we don't get that much in the comics medium. I can't recall having seen it. For those who are wondering what the hell I'm talking about, basically you take an image at some point, you split it along the y-axis, you know, or horizontally, and then you mirror it one side, smash it up back against the other, um, yep. and you get kind of a Rorschach with it, yep. you know, plus you're using, you know, textural it looks like filters those could be paintings on top of paintings i don't know there's these geometric patterns and designs it is it is completely and uniquely your own look i can i can say that definitively you know well, i feel like i've i've hit on a, a technique that's kind of i just really enjoy yeah and it's it's sort of based on um it's based on a game i used to play with my dad basically okay. and it's it's the whole thing where you'd you, you do a scribble on a piece of paper and you, pa you pass it to the next person. They'd see what they could see in it and turn it into something. You know, and it could be anything. It could either be a face or a squirrel or a dog or whatever you saw in it. Um, so an awful lot of what I'm doing is the ultimate version of that. <laughs> so, uh, and it's a, little bit, it's a little bit of Mobius approach to... Um, some some of the it's that sort of channeling your subconscious and allowing yourself not to uh not to overthink things um so basically i've got a big library of textures that are scanned in bits of paint and bits of old photos and all sorts of things that are smashed together that this collection of textures is so old that some of them i have no idea <laughs> you know <laughs> what the origins are now, so, they've been smashed together so many times, they're just a complete mess. Um, but there's a few that are particular favorites that I keep coming back to. Some always inspire landscapes. Every time I look at them, it's like a different landscape. I can, I can see it and I can either see a castle in it or I can see, uh, you know, whatever you need it to be, a, 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 a city waterworks for, uh, for Batman or any anything else, or then you'll see you look at it and you can see a face in there or a figure in there. And, and what I found is that when I was, I, it was really to try and break out to to escape my own um, 
my own propensities, which was that I I found that I was falling back on 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 figures that I was drawing again and again and again without realizing it, and I needed to break out of um, break out of that and, and find some a fresh approach because I, I think we're all in danger of just becoming sort of um, just less uh, well versions of ourselves you know <laughs> caricatures of ourselves if we're not careful so so this was just to try and um jolt me back into some sort of creative uh, way and what what i've found is that when i when i look at these textures and painted surfaces i will sometimes see a figure in a position that i would never naturally draw if that makes sense i would i would because I tend, what I tend to find is like I'll draw a rough that's full of energy and is like got a big foreshortening and 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 then as I'm overthinking it, rendering it, I will it, it loses its life somehow. It, it tends to get more and more um, rigid and less alive and less energetic and and it just loses something. So this techniques enabled me to be spontaneous in a way it's, it's enabled me to it does another funny thing too i mean i'm giving a, a lot away here i've been uh, debating whether whether i should or not that's my um, job i'm supposed to get you yeah. to do that right yeah <laughs> but it, it's like because sometimes you you don't have to do very much you know you can you can have a beautiful texture and you're just looking at it and going oh all i have to do is pick out this little bit here and it all you can see that it's a landscape you know, it's it's clearly a landscape, or oh, there's literally the same texture could be a spaceship. Uh, if you just extrapolate a different different bits of it, so it's almost like um, two dimensional sculpture, mm -hmm. where you're just pulling stuff out of 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 the this random mess, you know. And of course, that's as humans, this is what we do. We look at clouds and we see faces and sheep and dragons and birds. You know, this is part of our uh, makeup is to see, to, to anthropomorphize everything. So um, so there's that. And I'm also consciously doing, as you say, the, the, the putting the flipping the things and putting yep. it together. So you get the mirror stuff, which which is. Um, it, 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 it's fun in a whole different way, but it, it, that 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 works because that creates a kind of much more machined look. You know, so for technology that works really well, and you can take something really quite messy and random and, and do that, and suddenly it's got it's got structure that you might not have seen before. Um, and I just find it really exciting. You know, I can't wait. I would to 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 carve a little bit of time out for myself and just do some paintings in, with this approach. You know, without any sort of um, thought of of what it's going to be. Just just makes make a big mess and then see what i can see there and and, and then pull something in a really polished way out of that I, 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 that's something i'm kind of promising myself i'm going to do in the next year or two and do like yeah. a series of paintings i've got a, a, a photography series that's actually all of um, slot canyons uh -huh. um, so they're all from navajo land and so this is something that's just evolved over many many years where awesome. each of those end, ends up sequentially they're designed to display the navajo creation myth right. and it's all using that technique so wow 
Okay. It's a lot of fun. Well, yeah. 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 Very yeah, cool. for sure. So <laughs> is there a difference about that you discovered how you go about presenting on the page or in the panels when you're doing this painted work versus more of traditional line work? Um, yeah, there's a big difference in that. I mean, because that's only a little bit of what I've been doing. I'm obviously not doing that for all of it. Some of it is just, uh, it's, it's, it's digitally painted, but it's pa digitally painted in, a, in an approach that is as um, traditional as I can make it. So I'm, I'm tending to use quite sort of rough brushes in Photoshop um, with a, you know, the opacity quite low and building up in layers. So it's really like, just like painting and in, in, it's, it's really similar to painting with acrylic. Um, and then, then I'll use an airbrush just to soften between the two colors afterwards. Uh, but it, 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 what I, where it's different to doing traditional comics is I'm quite often not doing any structural stuff at all uh, in terms of like layouts and pencils or anything like that and just painting it um, and building it up in the paint as I go, um, which is really liberating. Um, and I, again, the, the joy of writing and painting and doing the whole thing is like you can, you can shift things around. I can move pages around. I can move panels around. I'm doing the last two issues back to back um, and shift jumping between the two uh, because that I wanted the end to, to really have some, there's some big stuff goes on in the last couple of issues. Um, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, when we get to that, I'm not, um, I'm not so pushed for time that the last issue falls off a cliff. You know, I, I, I wanted to be sure that I had some stuff in there that like it's, has got all the effort and all the polish and all the, you know, scale and, and, and uh, intensity of the, of the first issue. I mean, so far, I think that I've managed to sustain that all the way through. And I think that's that's not going to be a problem because I'm on top of it. Um, but you do worry because it is taking a lot on. <laughs> you know, it's a big story. And, and, and like I say, doing that means that I can then tweak things and move panels around and, you know, see where stuff's missing. I Like I just recently stuck two extra pages in issue two because I was... I kept going back to it and I was just thinking, there's a bit here where it's too much of a jolt. And we're not, I'm not feeling like we're, we as readers are, are being welcomed into, the, into this section of the story. It's like, it's too much of a jolt. So I, I, I create, a, there's a double page spread with a map on it, um, which sort of presents fifth century uh, Britain and sort of explains that. Iberia is, is Ireland. That's what it was at the time. And so for reference in that, this is, you know, this, and I've done it like, you know, with a picture here and a, a bit of string across and a pin in it uh, so that you can really see what we're talking about. Um, I love that kind of collage approach that that uh, Dave McKean and Bill Sienkiewicz really sort of perfected. Um, and I, I, I miss that and I, you don't see it that much. <laughs> Uh, and there are lots of people are sort of saying that's got to, it reminds them of like some of the Dave McKean uh, covers back in the day when he was doing the, the Sandman covers, um, which which is great. I'm I'm fine with that. Well, sure. Uh, yeah. 
those are certainly iconic. I was I was going to ask if you were enjoying the uh, the creator owned space, you know, over kind of more working on the established characters. It certainly already sounds like listening to your enthusiasm about this project that that question is kind of answered. But <laughs> yeah, I you know I I love writing. Um, I've got a couple of novels out. I've got a few more in the wings, and it's always frustrating because. Unfortunately, the industry has a tendency to do what, what I mentioned earlier, and that's put you in a pigeonhole. Um, sure. And people can't sort of really easily get the idea of you writing out of their heads. And they, they there's a tendency to say, well, if we put you with this person, then that's going to give the book more of a, a more of an opportunity. And I also found that when it was just me writing, like for the Brave and the Bold, that for whatever reason, the the you know there was a sense that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to do as well because there wasn't a big name writer attached and therefore it wasn't marketed to the same degree, which was frustrating because it's like, how can I become known as a, a, as a writer in the industry if, it, if, if, if it's not going to get decent marketing? So I'm, I'm really thrilled actually with how um, this has been perceived and how, how well it seems to be going across um, because because it's it's introducing more people to the fact that I write and have written for a very long time. It's just that I'm not known as a writer and I don't get that opportunity. And I see it too. I mean, it's fun. Working with Goth is great because he's an old mate and we've never done it before. And it seems crazy that we've never done it before. Uh, and it was a joy start to finish. So, so you know, we, had, we both really enjoyed it. Um, working with Grant, equally the same. It was absolute blast from start to finish. I I I, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Um, and of course, you know there are certain writers of their stature and ability that you're never going to say no to. Sure. Because <laughs> they just you know, you know you're going to be in for a treat one way or another. Um, so that that's lovely. But but I I want to build. I want to tell my own stories and my head's full of stories. It always has been. Um, and, and so doing it is great, but there is another side to it, which is the, what did I say? I wrote this actually in a piece that I published the other day, which is just about the lead up and the process and all of the um, things that have been going on in my head in the last sort of six months or so. And it's just an analogy that uh, David Bowie, once said that always really rang true with me this idea that as a creative you should uh, be on tiptoe up to your nose in the sea you know and occasionally the waves are covering you and occasionally you've got your whole head out and you can get a, a good breath of air and see the shore and everything but you're never quite on safe ground you're always you know you're always in a slightly uncomfortable place um and that's the most that's where you should be as a creator if you're too comfortable you're never going to push yourself if you fit if you're afraid to do something you're never going to do anything daring you know you'll never you'll, you'll never do anything new if if you're afraid um to try uh, and and in this book particularly there, there were times when i was like you know forget being on tiptoe with my nose out I, Occasionally, I, the, the tides had dragged me way out to sea and I couldn't see the land. I was like this shark circling. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? It was, uh, it was overwhelming at times. Um, and and I was, there, 
there was definitely moments where I thought, I'm an idiot. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, Jesus Christ, what the hell? You know, wh why of all the books, of all the ideas I've had, um, why am I doing my first creator own image book uh, doing this one? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sure. It's not an easy sell, perhaps. You know, it's 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 not really. I, I can't really think of a comic to compare it to, and that was weird too, because you know, inevitably over the when you when you're working on stuff, you you can't help but sort of draw little comparisons, and you know, you you're always inspired by something. Like I say, even if it's subconscious, you're always inspired by something. Occasionally, I've gone back and read novels from my childhood and gone, oh, that's where I got that idea. I totally forgot. You know, yeah. It's popped up 20 years later in something else. I totally, I, I thought it was completely mine. And it turns out I'd you know, just forgotten that I'd read this a long time ago. Um, so it, 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 it's a weird old process. And when you're on your own with something, it's, it's tougher too, because you're then like you haven't got a writer to work with you haven't got you know anybody else on the team to be talking with or you know thankfully my wife is brilliant at, um at feeding back and she even with the novels she's she's read she she'll read my like the novels aloud so that i can hear the the cadence and the the rhythm and whether i've repeated a word sometimes you can't see it on the screen it really helps when someone reads it aloud and she's done the same for me with Starhenge too so she's read uh, read the whole thing to me so I could just hear it back make sure that it's not stilted and that the, the voice is remaining consistent because that's important as well and all of these things help you know all of them uh, again Nicobadzis has been great in feeding back about the the issues and um, and uh, you know Image have been really good too and just, just lovely. Uh, Kelly Sudaconic and and uh, Matt Fraction and a bunch of other people um, were kind enough to read um, the first couple of issues and feedback, and they were so sort of well, they were more than generous. <laughs> it seemed like they were quite blown away really <laughs> do, do you start to worry if like that's what you're getting all oh. the time and you're just like are they just being nice to me <laughs> <laughs> well i need i really badly needed to hear what what they said you know i i, I needed to i was starting that i i was going through a little moment then of like i is this any i can't tell i'm ah. too close to it yeah I, I cannot tell if this is working or not if it makes any sense or not um I've, I've worked and worked so hard on it that, you know, I, I, and it's easy to get like, you hear that, you'll hear that story from musicians, you hear it from filmmakers, you hear it from, you'll hear it from anyone who's um, intensely and, uh, you know, very seriously pursuing a creative endeavor. They, they will all have that same story, I think. You know? um, and I think as well, I talk about this a lot. A lot of people are always confused that I seem to be beating myself up on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and I'm I'm down on my art or don't seem confident about it, um, and or surprised if people like it, things like that. To me, that is that's the second I drink my own Kool Aid is the second I have to stop doing it. You know, if I think I'm brilliant, then I will never get any better, and I'll turn into a fairly 
unpleasant human as well, probably. <laughs> um, I don't want to be that. As long as I see what's wrong in it, I can get better. As long as I see room for improvement, then I can reach for that. Um, you know, you, you set yourself the... Christ, my, my, my standard when I was a kid was Michelangelo. You know, it's like... he. I, w I couldn't carve the Pieta when I was 21 like he did, and I couldn't carve it now. So, you know, I'll never be a Michelangelo. Um, and, and as long as you have that standard in your head, that you're, you're always going to be reaching. You know, always. Um, and and I'd, I'd say the same for the writing too, because I love writing. So I, I'm hugely inspired by the, the writers that I, that, that I like. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm wanting my writing to be as challenging as, as the art and I'm pushing myself on that too. Um, Literature is extremely important to me, always has been. So yeah, it's, it's, the, whole, it's the whole thing, but it's, it's daunting. So uh, what as a writer, so like just take the artist hat off, you know, what yeah. as a writer would you ultimately like to read, leave the, the reader of Starhenge with, or is that even a consideration, you know? Or, I, I, I think somebody asked me something similar recently. It's like, what do you think that people might be surprised by when they read Starhenge? And I suppose that sort of answers the same, uh, answers your question too. My yeah. answer was that it, it um, I hope that it's more approachable than it might seem to be given the, mass, the vast themes. I hope that it's uh, accessible and at least a little bit relevant and that it you know has has a heart and and that you find yourself invested in the characters and want to know what their story is and where they're going and how it's going to play out for them you know i want to know yeah. <laughs> it's a long game too so we have to get to like them quite early on to want to stay with them and i'm i am a Obviously, we have to lose characters in these stories. It, it's tough. In real life, people die. But I don't want to be doing, you know, I want us to feel like we can invest our time in the characters. I don't want to do a, uh, on this one, I don't want to do a George Martin. <laughs> you know? Fair enough. Um, I, I take my hat off to him for what he did, but you know, I'm not going to kill Ned straight off the bat you know? yeah yeah um I, I, but but it's still there's still sadness in there and there's still emotional content i hope and um a blossoming uh, relationship and the, the journey that that goes on which starts very human and then and then ends up in a much more complicated space uh, as as it progresses um and all the different balances between the characters of what 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 they are, what they represent, uh, their part in the story, you know, at different times, different characters are out of their depth. Um, Merlin is obviously quite sort of self, self-confident and, or, uh, you know, he's not mad at the beginning of the story, but in, Merlin's mad. That's, <laughs> he's always mad. Mm -hmm. um, so, we we see we see a reasonable amount of him in the first issue, but then he's kind of a background figure for a lot of it. We 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 keep revisiting the story, but it's bouncing through the Jeffrey of Monmouth timeline, you know. So it keeps it's cutting back to different stages of of him 
getting uh, how, how he goes about getting um, Stonehenge built, and that's referencing the Monmouth stuff, uh, and you know, Uther and Arthur and all of those things, and he how he thinks he's on the course to do it, and and how it all falls apart and doesn't end up being. Um, going as well as he hoped but obviously he's there for an awful long time he's been through his time traveled he's he, he doesn't know if he's sane or not himself um so there's a there's an element of like the stories that we know that he's going to be meeting amber because that's pretty clear that's clear in issue one that that, that she's telling the story we know that's going to happen but we don't know how reliable he is as a as a storyteller you know, and she she doesn't really trust him either. You know, she's like, you know, she, there's there's the whole chunks where she's sort of saying, "Well, he said it happened like this," and I wasn't there, but it doesn't seem very likely. <laughs> but for the sake of this, we kind of have to go along with it. And then again, it's like, well, maybe it did happen like that because the past was magical in this story. So maybe the magical version of how Stonehenge was built is is actually the real version and then it wasn't a neolithic um you know sundial it was it was it was taken from Hiberia and uh, um stolen from the irish so it, 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 there's there's fun there's a lot of fun there and I, what i hope is that for the people who love that kind of material and have uh, some knowledge of those myths and those stories They'll they'll get a, a kind of a kick out of it and a wry smile and you know they'll enjoy it. But I also hope that, that anybody who has no interest in that whatsoever can still jump into this series and just have have a laugh with it and enjoy the characters and sort of go, well, you know, it's, it's fun, it's fantasy, it's science fiction. So that that's the that's the dream, that's the hope. Well, coming full circle, and this is this is my last question. I always want to give opportunity for dads to brag on their kids because I know they love doing it, you know, and you already mentioned your daughter. She's got a variant cover for this, I think. Is that right? Yeah, she has. Yeah, yeah. And I was a, a backer on um, the Yawa the Adventurer, which she illustrated. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Do, yeah. Did you, do you ever want your kids to follow in your footsteps? Uh, my parents were amazing with me in that it was never... They supported me whatever I wanted to do. I'm, I'm a working class kid from Derby, which is an industrial town in the middle of England. It's known for like the Rolls-Royce factory where they build the aeroplane engines and Toyota's there. And it was like the hub of the industrial revolution back in the day and the silk mills that used to be there and used to provide material. Denby Crown China and all of these kinds of things. Uh, Derby Crown China and Denby big pottery factory um it's a very very uh, industrial city and it's a city without an ego i always say that people have always been in derby always a bit like why why do you want to come to derby for it's rubbish here and it's not rubbish it's great it's, great. it's a lovely town with a great uh, a real sense of character and identity um it's a smashed up town because it's been redeveloped and redeveloped again and again um, sometimes well and sometimes badly, the same as every town. It's, it's in the middle of a beautiful county. Derbyshire has got, got Chatsworth House, very historical um, building. Mary Queen of Scots was there. and So the, 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 the county itself is beautiful. Um, 
but it's a working class town uh, and I was as a kid loved comics loved art and loved all these uh, you know, what what frankly a lot of people in, when I was a kid thought were weird things you know <laughs> oh you're a bit of a weirdo you like science fiction you like fantasy that's that's a bit weird that. um so i was i was one of those kids that was that liked liked odd liked comics and i always wanted to do comics and my parents thought that's fine my dad could have been a great artist and he had the opportunity to go to um there used to be a, a famous art school in derby um joseph white who's <clears throat> he's actually a famous oil painter he, he did uh like his scientific paintings um that that uh, there's like a bird in a bell jar and things like that oil paintings from a couple of centuries ago but he so he's a derby painter very well regarded and so they used to have they used to be an art school there and he had a chance to go to that but his parents being working class and everything and family just nobody really appreciated that opportunity he didn't get it so they were always like whatever we can do for you we will support you and my parents have always supported me against the odds and all of these weird you know dreams that i've had uh and i'm hugely thankful for that because they paved the way for me to do what i'm doing and do the things that i love um and and so of course i i try to be the same for my kids and to do whatever they want to do i try to be supportive and to um, you know, let them find their path through life. You can't make, you can't cast anyone in your own form. You know, that's not our job is to make many versions of ourselves and our own people. Um, but of course, I'm delighted that she's an artist. They could, all three of them could have been artists. Only she's chosen to be a practicing one so far. My uh, oldest son is, is a. He does a lot of film editing and filming and stuff like that. So he's a, he's creative, but he could have been a, a anything he liked. Really, <laughs> they're all they're all very artistic. Um, but yeah, so she did. There's a page in issue one mm -hmm. where we see in the background there's a horned god and Amber with her tarot deck and their drawings above her wicker shrine. And Matilda did them, uh, and and I said to her, I loved the one she did of Amber with the with the with the cards. And I said we should make a cover out of that one. That'd be amazing. It'd be really nice. You know, can we do a more finished version of that? So to get her to do an alternate cover for uh, for issue one was just delightful. But more than that, she's done three pages of issue two. Issue okay. two is. Um, there's a sequence that's quite uh, emotional. It's about her when uh, Amber when she was younger, and it just struck me when I was looking at the script and thinking it through that because I'd already come up with this concept of her being an artist and and sort of looking at the world through the filter of her art and through the lens of an artist. Um, I I really liked the idea that that could be done. That flashback could be told in a in yet another style, just to keep each of the the eras distinct, you know. Um, and this is yet another sort of flashback within or an already complex narrative structure. So, so it, it was it was great that she did it. It worked an absolute treat. She's coming back for two two more pages in the final issue. 
um, and I'll see if I can get her to do a, a cover, for, uh, another alternate cover for the for issue six as well. Um, but yeah, so obviously, <laughs> I got a big old um, warm heart when uh, when the comps came in and I saw her, uh, her her cover there, and it's like it's a number one, it's image, it's like this is a, this is great. So yeah, I'm really proud of her and. Yeah, she's doing the Yawa stuff, and we're doing actually we've got we're doing a Kickstarter together. It's a poem I it's a poem I wrote called "The Great Hereafter," and it's like the idea being that she's misheard the Great Hereafter and imagines that it's a hair. Okay. And so she, her granddad's ill, and she's writing to the Great Hereafter in the hope that he's not going to take her granddad away. Um, so and so we're doing an illustrated kids book together, um, oh, which cool. we'll be putting onto Kickstarter. And it's uh, and I wrote it when she was little, and I used to read it to her when my granddad was ill, actually. So it was a, it was kind of about my granddad, but and I was always meant to illustrate it myself, but I just never had the time. And now she's taken this this story and this poem that I wrote years and you know over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 24, 23 years ago, uh, and she's going to illustrate it. So it's uh, it's really sweet. And I'm excited to, she's already broken it all down and done rough for the whole thing, laid it all out. So I know it's going to look lovely. <laughs> uh, I always like to carve out time for papas to brag about their kids when they can. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, they're all great. I'm very proud of all of them. My my youngest just graduated, so uh, we're we're. My wife keeps saying, oh, "We're we're empty nesters in training." <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. We're working our way through <laughs> honors geometry this summer with my teenager. So, uh, well, good yeah. luck with that. Yeah, yeah in, indeed, it's 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 a little tough, but yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Well, Liam, thank you so much for coming on the show today, indulging my questions about the artistic process here. The, the writing is stellar. I just got a chance to geek out a little bit with the artistic stuff. So we, we got a little off topic, but um, it's rare to get to interview somebody whose you know, comic influence stretches back to my early days, you know, ex looking at the medium for the first time. You know, right. I, re I reject any assumptions that that makes us old, you know, first of all. <laughs> But Starhenge, Starhenge is gorgeous. Um, you know, in in many ways, it reminded me of a, a you know this throwback piece where the the heroes are all painted fangs, muscles, and teeth. But it had that uniquely modern interpretation of this old mythology we're all familiar with. So right. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's really appreciated. Yeah, and, and thanks I for hope, me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I hope everyone listening goes and picks it up. Uh, this is Brian O'Neill, and for all of us at Comic Book Eddie, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.